Thanks for joining us here at KVCR for KVC Arts, arts and entertainment as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. Later in the program, we're going to hear a couple of my favorite stories from Kathy Young, barely 15, when a thousand stars rapidly climbed the charts. We'll hear about her time in Hawaii with an allergic reaction to the lay presented to her, also getting kidnapped by the Everly Brothers. A fun experience for her, but the army base went on lockdown, not realizing it was a, quote, friendly kidnapping. We're going to start the program with Mindy McNeil, rest in peace, in conversation with comedian Brad Williams. He'll be at the Irvine Improv August 13th through the 15th, and when they spoke, it was the Ontario Improv, which kept coming up. That's actually the club where my career was kind of made. I was in the audience of a Carlos Mencia show, and he was making fun of midgets, and half the crowd was laughing, and the crowd that was sitting by me was not laughing because they could see me. And Mencia kind of looked over and said, why are you guys laughing? What is one of them here? And I raised my creepy little hand in the air and he called me up on stage, asked me some questions. I gave him some answers. They got laughs. And when that happened, I knew I need to be a comedian. And that's when I was 19. I immediately dropped out of college and started doing stand-up comedy. So I always have a special place in my heart for the Ontario Improv. I think that night... I ended up putting on some, like, Mexican cowboy boots and dancing in front of the audience and ended up giving a woman a lap dance, which became my closing joke for in the last 10 years. So you literally trace all the debauchery in my life back to the Ontario Improv. So I like to give back, and I like to provide them with a little debauchery myself. You know, and I love that because, you know, I've had some places where if you get your start with something that's your home base, I'm going to keep going there all the time. Yeah, it's funny because I was born and raised in Orange County, California, yet I consider the Ontario Improv my home club. And that's good. Now, let me ask, what is it like being out on the road with Carlos? It was fun. I got to learn. That was right when the Mind of Mencia stuff was going on. So I got to be on his show, which means I got to dress up in a lot of funny outfits and hump so many objects. That was pretty much my role in the show, like official humper. Okay. Yeah, they pretty much just thought, well, what's funnier than a dwarf humping something? Not much. So let's try to include that in as many sketches as possible. But it was a blast, but I've been headlining on my own. And I certainly cherish my time with Mencia, but I definitely enjoy being out on my own more just because now it's my show. Now I get to do what I want to do. And I get to be on stage for a full hour. And who doesn't want to look at a dwarf telling jokes for an hour? It's great. And how is that? Did you automatically become a headliner because you had been opening up for him? Or did you have to make your way from, you know, opening act to opening act to finally getting your own thing doing headlining? It's fine because when you're known as an opening act for a while, then other clubs are kind of hesitant to take a chance on you because you're an opening act. But thankfully, some clubs took a chance on me, the Ontario Improv being one of them, and let me have my own weekend there. And they went well. So then other clubs just kind of hopped on board and started scooping me up. Also, too, and now, you know, I know you did some stuff on Leno. You did Jimmy Kimmel. Is it because of you doing the headlining, or did you have to go out and audition? How did you get that type of work? Well, pretty much the stuff on Leno was I played a leprechaun, and yeah. the stuff on Kimmel was like I would play a demonic Chucky doll. So pretty much they needed a little person that was willing to make an ass of himself. And I'm pretty much on the top of that list in Hollywood. So yeah, I had to audition for those things. I mean, 
every now and then someone like a friend would help me out. I know Jim Jeffries had me on his show Legit that was on FX, and he threw me on that show just because we're buddies. But yeah, for the most part, I still have to go out and audition just like everyone else. What's funny is that when I audition for roles that are specifically little people, there's only about 12 of us in Hollywood that do every part. So it's kind of the same 12 people at every audition, and you kind of get to know these guys like, you know their backstories, so we see each other at auditions and we have conversations that we left off the last time we had an audition. It's kind of cool that way. It's funny because like people think they're insulting me when they say, "Oh, I know this other dwarf. Do you know him?" And it's like I want to get mad, but I can't because I do know him. Like it's that kind of community where we literally do all know each other. Okay. What's it like being on the road? Because I was looking at your website and I'm like, you're going to Denver, you're going to Baltimore, you're going to Sacramento. So how is that to like have a personal life and do different things? Oh, you don't. <laughs> yeah, and then on top of that, I have a morning radio show in San Francisco. So yeah, it's just, I like to keep busy and the road certainly keeps you busy. It gives you a lot of chance to catch up on Netflix and things like that. I don't know how comics did the road without... Netflix and HBO Go and all these technologies (laughs) that we have nowadays. I think that's why they did so much heroin, because they would just go to these hotel rooms in the middle of nowhere that they don't know anyone in the city, and they would just be really bored. So literally drugs was how they passed the time. Now we have Netflix, which is my new addiction. See, and I'm glad that you're saying this, because, you know, like, for someone like me, like, I'm not an actor, it's not trying to be an actress, but I think, okay, wow, once you get on a show, you're on every show, and you know everybody, so basically, you automatically have to walk through the door. You know, it's Someone like me, who has no agent, nobody, anything, I'm thinking I'd have to audition. And I look at somebody like you, like, oh, he's already in there. He's connected. Oh, no, you still have to audition. It's funny because that same mindset definitely happens in the audition where you have guys like me and Wee Man, Jason Acuna, and a couple of little people that are a little more prominent. We walk in, and then other guys like, ah, great, they're here. They're getting the part. And no, it's not always. It's not always how it works. But I don't really look at myself as being a famous little person. I think I'm number four on the list. You know, you got Peter Dinklage, number one. You got B-Man, number two. Warwick Davis, number three. I'm number four. And then number five is the hot dwarf chick, Justin Bieber. (laughs) You're killing me. Well, I know you said you were in school, so you dropped out of USC. What were you going to USC for? I was going to school for communications when I dropped out, so don't worry. We didn't, like, lose a cancer cure when I decided to stop and (laughs) do stand-up comedy. We're fine. Yeah, believe it or not, I was trying to become a sports announcer. I thought just the visual of me interviewing basketball players would be hilarious. And I thought I had a decent enough voice for it, so I said, yeah, I'm going to try to be a sports announcer. Then I started doing comedy, and... Literally, the first time I was on stage, it was that moment where, like, everything in life became perfectly clear. It's like, oh, this is what I was put on this planet to do. Wow. It was a really cool moment. Okay, so you basically just went from there. It wasn't like you were going to the improv and like, okay, I'm trying to get my big break. You're like, I'm just going to have a night of comedy. Yeah, I was a fan, and then, like I said, I got to go on stage, and thankfully, when I was on stage, I made the audience laugh, and that right there was the first whiff of crack. That was, I was like, oh my God, now I'm chasing that high every damn night. You know what, and I think that's the thing, it's like, if you do what you love, you're not really working, huh? Yeah, amen. It's weird. People look at my schedule, and they see how much I'm traveling, and they see that I'm doing a morning radio show, and they see that I'm doing a podcast, and they see that I'm acting and doing all this stuff, and then they say, oh my God, you work so hard. And I go, who's working? This is fun. This is stuff that I would do just 
on my own time. I mean, don't tell them that they don't have to pay me, but they really wouldn't have to pay me. Your secret is safe with me, my dear. I promise. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. How do you come up with the jokes? You know, do you just look at somebody and you just start going from there, or do you just think about things, or how does that Here's work for you? Here's the thing. I'm very jealous of other comedians because they are brilliant joke writers. They can sit down and write a joke and create from nothing. I'm not very good at that. Here's how I write my jokes. Uh, step one, be a dwarf. Step two, wait. <laughs> Funny stuff is going to happen to you. Like, even before I was doing stand-up, I would tell people stories about my life, and they would be cracking up. They're like, no way that's real. i say, no, that's what happened to me. The first joke I ever told on stage was a true story where I just walked into a Starbucks, tried to order a tall coffee, and the entire staff there just lost it. Like, you, you can't have a tall coffee. You can't. Like, no, I want freaking tall coffee and there was that moment going back and forth and then when i said it on stage for my very first joke ever they kind of big laugh so i was like jesus i don't sit down and write i just gotta wait until funny stuff happens to me what's the hardest part about being a comic though for you i don't know it's kind of all fun if i had to complain and i don't want people to think i'm complaining is just the travel Dom Herrera, who is a great comic, has a saying that says, they don't pay me to go on stage, they pay me to get there. They pay you to travel, because that's, you know, waking up early for flights and trying to get places on time and being in the air four or five, six hours. Yeah, that kind of sucks, but when you look at the jobs that people do on a day-to-day basis, you know, I'm not mining for coal, I'm not stuck in a cubicle, I'm not doing hard labor, and I'll take my job any day of the week. Do you have situations where you're just there for a day, or do you say, hey, if I'm coming out, I want to be here, get me two nights guaranteed? Or I mean, I certainly have times where I'm just in, in town for a day, and I have times when I'm in town for a few days, but I want to be there for a few days because I want to experience the town. Like That's the thing. Is I don't stay in my hotel room. I go out. I go out to the cities. I try to experience the best local restaurants. If there's some sort of activity that everyone does, then absolutely. So, yeah, so like... I'll go down a river if that's what they do there. If they're skiing, I'll try to go skiing. If it's in the Inland Empire, I'll do meth. You know, it's just like whatever the locals are into. <laughs> and that's the thing is I hear comics all the time talk about, oh, how the life is so hard. The life is so hard. It's, I'm, I'm living it going, holy crap, this is sweet. The other thing, though, I was really curious, you know, because every place is different. Like if you're going to Sacramento, there's one thing. If you're coming here, you know, to the Inland Empire, there's another thing. You're going to Baltimore. Do you do research or how do you find out what you're going to talk about? Because obviously something that's going to kill in Baltimore might not kill in Ontario. Oh, but see, here's the beautiful part about comedy. Funny is funny. If you sell it, if you believe in it. What's funny in Baltimore is funny in Ontario. There's minor tweaks that you have to change. But thankfully, through my travels and doing this as long as I've been doing it, you find out the differences. You find out what there is of a certain region of the country where they'll let you say something outrageous but won't want you so much to talk about a certain topic. I love it. It's always fascinating to me what the audience is and what they can be. And that's the thing. I love seeing the country because everyone goes off on how different we all are all over the country. Are you a red state? Are you a blue state? Are you in the south? Are you on the coast? Are you a flyover state? And then you fly to these states and you perform for these people and you go, oh, you're just people that want to laugh at jokes just anyone else. It's great. It truly lets me realize how united this country truly is because we have way more in common than we think. We all think fart jokes are funny. At the end of the day, we all do.
That was Mindy McNeil in conversation with Brad Williams at the Irvine Improv August 13th through the 15th. More at bradwilliamscomedy.com. And you can also check out the website for the Irvine Improv. And once again, rest in peace, Mindy McNeil, who spent some time at KVCR as an intern before moving to Denver and working at KUVO. She passed away May 1st of 2020 due to complications with asthma. She was 49. Back now with KBC Arts, I'm David Fleming. Let's go now to Kathy Young, barely 15, when A Thousand Stars hit the charts. She had several follow-ups and did some recording with Chris Montez as well. Kathy Young will be performing in the region soon as part of Legends of Doo-Wop and Rock and Roll Volume 3, along with Terry Johnson's Flamingos, Leon Hughes' Coasters, The Dukes of Doo-Wop, Jay Siegel's Tokens, and emceed by comedian Scott Wood. More at affordablemusicproductions.com. You ended up on American Bandstand maybe four times. Uh-huh. I know that because I saw the photograph of this, this is where you got your gold record, 4,000 stars. Dick Clark actually gave it to you, yeah? He did. What mm-hmm. an absolutely surprising moment that was. I had no idea. I mean, I knew oh. it was number one, you know, in most of the United States. Billboard gave me number three. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cashbox, which is not around anymore, gave me number one. And so I knew, you know, it was pretty big and everybody was playing it and everybody loved it. But I had no idea that it sold a million records. You know, that just (laughs) didn't seem possible. So I was on American Bandstand to promote Happy Birthday Blues. And I had sung the Happy Birthday Blues on stage. You know, the show's live. No, No taping back then. Not to tape and play later. You know, it was live right, right then. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm waiting, you know, for the music to start for a thousand stars. And there's no music. And I'm looking around. Okay, guys, <laughs> you know what's going on? And here comes Dick walking across the stage. He walked up to me and pulled from behind his back a gold record and handed it to me. <sighs> I just stood there with my mouth open going, Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) and then I started crying on live TV (laughs) and I cried and I cried and then I'm absolutely sobbing I'm not kidding I mean I was just unhinged and Dick's going come on Kathy this is a live show I'm like I can't help it I can't help it and he goes alright cut to a commercial during the commercial he's like Kathy now you got to get yourself together I'm like I can't I'm not kidding I could not stop crying it's like once it turned on there was no way to shut it off we came back from commercial and I was still crying <laughs> and I've talked to so many people who were watching that show at that time and almost started crying with me because <laughs> yeah. they couldn't believe it either and it was just amazing very lucky girl let me tell you and there was no warning they truly blindsided you they really surprised you with this one I don't think my mom even knew because I would have picked up on something but no absolutely no idea at all Wow. <laughs> and that picture that's on my website of yes. Dick and yes. I, you know, holding my gold record, 
I had that picture framed in a really nice frame, and I took it to Dick Clark at his office in Burbank and gave it to him. And he said, you know, he said, nobody has ever brought me a picture like this. He said, I've had a lot of people tell me thank you, but he said, nobody's ever, you know, had it so nicely framed and brought it to me. He said, I'm going to hang this right here behind my desk. I'm like, oh, and I started crying again. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you get around Dick Clark, you end up crying now. <laughs> oh, anytime I think about those wonderful times back then, I start crying. I have to be very careful when I'm doing, you know, an interview like this or I'm on stage. Because mm-hmm. if I really get too deep into remembering and, you know, feeling it, I'll start crying and I can't stop. Oh, because gosh. it was such a wonderful, wonderful thing. I just feel so... God just has blessed me with the opportunity to get to do what I absolutely love and still get to do it. on speaking about a thousand stars and that brings me back to magic is the night magic is the night really reminds me of a thousand stars this could be a matter of concern like oh well it's too much like it or maybe it's a thousand stars with such a successful formula let's try it again with magic is the night's You know, and that I'm not too sure. I think it was more that, yeah, birthday didn't do so well. Let's kind of go back, you know, a little bit different, but still with the innocence and a more of a thousand stars sound. Of course, a thousand stars will always be my absolute favorite, favorite, favorite. It really is to sing it. It just is so comfortable. I can do that song in my sleep. Mm-hmm. But Magic is the Night, I would almost say my second favorite. Oh, okay. I, I love singing that song, and it's a great song. It just it didn't make it either. Timing is everything. And it's amazing, too, for you to be, I, you started at the top. You know, it would have been maybe more <laughs> rewarding to start somewhere closer to the bottom and work your way up and eventually see success and have some growth. But you had nowhere to go but down <laughs> from number one. <laughs> oh, what a horrible thing. And that's thing. okay with me. Yeah. The fact that I got to do it. <laughs> Back in those days, you know, I always felt like I didn't have to earn my way here. I didn't have to do all of the smaller places. I got to start and just go boom. So in a lot of ways, I felt like the other entertainers and other singers, they had so much on me because I didn't know how to work an audience. I didn't have to learn how to, you know, kind of quiet a crowd down. I didn't, you know, I mean, not that you ever really want to be quiet, but sometimes they can be a little rowdy. Yep, yep. But I didn't do those kind of places because I was only 15 years old. So again, I was really lucky, but... I feel, in a lot of ways, I missed out on a lot of things, too. Oh, yeah, But I'll certainly. take it. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> I'll take it however I got it. Yeah, wouldn't trade it for the world there. <laughs> Earlier, we spoke of Roy Orbison, the Everly Brothers, the Shirelles, and folks like that. What can you think of with folks like, say, Shirley Alston Reeves or Ray Charles, Neil Sedaka? What are some things that you feel you picked up early on from them? You know, I think the biggest thing that I ever learned was to own the stage. Mm, When you're out there, it's yours. Don't worry about what anybody else has done or anything, just for me anyway. This was Mm. how I did it because I'd only been in front of an audience twice 
before oh. a thousand stars oh. with a hit. Oh. I had done my talent show in junior high school, and I had won one year, and I came back the next year and won again. That was the only time I had sung in front of an audience. Ever? Otherwise, <laughs> well, I sang in my mom's choir in the church, so, you know, I sang there, and I sang solos quite often, but that was church. That was everybody I knew, small little church, and then Glee Club for the junior high school. That was the other audience, and a couple of solos there, but not on a stage by myself, only twice. And so I used to walk out there. I never had stage fright. I just could not wait to get out there with that band and that microphone and those kids out there just wanting to dance and, you know, hold hands and listen to these beautiful words and just kind of sway back and forth together if it was at a dance or a show with an audience sitting down. And I just would always tell myself, if they could do this, they would be up here. But they're not. It's me. This is my turn. This is me. So enjoy it and give them what they want. Just sing your heart out. Wow. And I did. And really, I never had anybody give me any pointers. Not about stage presence. Or I didn't ask anybody. I just watched and picked up on the fact that when they were out there, they gave it their all. And that was what I did. Beautiful. That's what we would <laughs> hope for. You had touched on something a minute ago. Oh, the Everly Brothers. We did three days in Hawaii, which is where I was for my 16th birthday. <laughs> Poor you. <laughs> I know. Life's tough, huh? <laughs> Waikiki again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a huge surfer. Loved oh, that's right. To surf. I grew up surfing Huntington Beach and trestles and oh, just up and down Southern California coast all the time. And so my mom and I went over and I did uh, three shows with the Everly Brothers. <laughs> but I would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, grab my board, hit the beach, go out, surf all day, come back, run into the beauty salon, get my hair done, jump in my Jeep with my mom, go do the show, come back the next day, hit the beach. <laughs> so we're doing, I think it was the Civic Auditorium, the Everly Brothers, Jerry Fuller, Dickie doing the Don'ts, me, and I think there was one other person, I can't remember who it was, but during shows in Hawaii, the kids will come up and they'll put lays around your neck while mm. you're singing. You just lean down and they just keep putting lays on you and to the point where it gets up to your chin and someone will come off out of the wings and take all these off and then more kids bring more and more and more. It's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful thing. They're so sweet. Nice. They're so giving and loving. This I'm pretty sure was the first night and then we were going to do a second night at the Civic Auditorium and I'm singing and all of a sudden nothing. I'm singing and nothing is coming out. I'm like, what? 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 Ah, nothing, nothing. I can't sing. There's no sound coming out. And I turned around to the band, to Dickie, and I went like, ah, you know, I'm pointing to my throat, and I'm like, ah, zero, nothing. So the MC came on and said, sorry, folks, and I walked off stage, and I got off, and Phil Everly came over to me, and he said, you have laryngitis. He said, you're going to have it for 24 hours, and then your voice comes back perfect. He said, it's this little tiny flower that some people are allergic to, and you lose your voice. I was like, oh, my gosh. He was right. 24 hours later, the next night, the next show, my voice was back. <laughs> so they asked that 
and they not bring lays with those little tiny white flowers on them. Oh my gosh. I never would have thought yeah. of that. that would, no, me either. The worst I would have considered was maybe a bee coming out of one of the flowers. I mean, that's that's it. That's no. like, wow. Yeah. yeah. So the next night we came back and we did the show again and my voice was back and that was great. And then the next night we were at Schofield Army Base. Okay. So they had this great big stage set up outside and all these chairs all around for all these guys to sit and I'm just looking at a sea of hats. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in seventh heaven here. <laughs> just, just all these men everywhere. Now I'm just 16, but still, you oh, know. Yeah, it's a thought. Yeah. I'm like a good looking guy, nice guy. Yeah. So anytime I was on a show with anybody, I would stand in the wings and watch. Mm-hmm. I watched every person, everybody, every show. The only time I wouldn't be in the wings is if I was getting dressed or getting ready to come on. I was always in the wings watching everybody. So I'm standing there at the base of these stairs, which are, you know, the stage was maybe five feet off the ground, you know, big open thing. And so I'm standing there watching the Everly Brothers, and their limo is pulled up there at the base of the stairs, ready for when they come off. They just jump in the limo, and, you know, they're gone. (laughs) So I'm standing there watching them, and they come off the stage. The doors open. One of them jumps in. The other one, as he's coming down, grabs me, pulls me into the limo, and we take off. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've been kidnapped by the Everly Brothers. They they were the nicest guys and so much fun. And just, you know, I said, you know, this is my third day working with them, and they were fun. They were neat. So we leave the base in this big, long, black stretch limo. We leave the base, and we go to the local radio station, which didn't happen to be too far away from Schofield. We walk in the door. Hi, guys. We're taking over tonight. You can take a break. So Phil and Don and I sat down, and we took telephone requests, and we talked to people on the air and played their songs that they wanted and told stories and everything and just having a great time. And I said to the guys, I said, you know, I said, my mom and dad are probably wondering where I am. They might not have seen that you guys grabbed me and we took off. So over the air, we told the audience, we said, hey, if anybody has the number for Schofield Army Base, would you call them and tell Kathy's parents that she's okay? They had shut down the base because they thought I really had been kidnapped. Nobody had really seen them grab me and take me, and they thought I was truly kidnapped. Oh, no. (laughs) It was so great. It's so sad, but so great. Some sort of... We had such a good time. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Incredible. So then the next day, I'm back out on the waves, (laughs) surfing out there all day. It was a wonderful, fantastic, yeah, they're great guys. That was Kathy Young performing in the region soon as part of Legends of Doo-Wop and Rock and Roll Volume 3, along with Terry Johnson's Flamingos, Leon Hughes' Coasters, The Dukes of Doo-Wop, Jay Siegel's Tokens, and emceed by comedian Scott Wood. More at affordablemusicproductions.com. And with that, we wrap up another edition of KVC Arts. Thanks again to Kathy Young, as well as to Nathan Gothels of Affordable Music Productions for initially getting me in touch with Kathy, and for that matter, introducing me to her at a previous concert. 
Thanks also to Brad Williams. And once again, Williams will be at the Irvine Improv August 13th through the 15th. Here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Duloc, and Sharina Wad. Music beds and themes heard on KVCR is composed and performed by Sean Longstreet. So thanks to Sean as well. Many past shows can be found through iTunes, Spotify, and NPR One. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support.